0: We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Unquirking a Story is brought to you by Michael Carlin's latest novel, The Ruin of Souls. Do you like books about gladiators? Well, if you do, that's too bad because there are no gladiators in this story. However, there are puzzles to solve and plot twists that will leave you speechless. It's the perfect accompaniment to that beach vacation you put off last year, So pick it up wherever books are sold. Enjoy the show. Well, hello, and welcome to Uncorking a Story, where we dig into the stories behind the stories by your favorite authors or authors you didn't realize were your favorite authors just yet. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I am so excited to share with you The story of Mary Dixie Carter. And if you're around my age, that name may ring a bell because she's the daughter of Dixie Carter uh, of Designing Women fame and the stepdaughter of Hal Holbrook. Her debut novel, The Photographer, is available for sale right now wherever books are sold. And we'll get into her story in a few minutes. But first, first, I have to talk about road trips. And not just because I just got back from a little bit of a road trip up to Cape Cod with my family but that's only about four or so hours from from where I live. I'm talking about, honest to goodness, long road trips. Because our chat opens up with Mary talking about uh, what she's doing right now, which is a cross-country trek with her uh, husband and and two little girls. They're driving an RV from uh, one end of the country to the other, or one side of the country to the other. And it kind of reminded me of the road trips that we used to take when I was growing up, not that we would do anything that big. I mean, we didn't rent RVs. I mean, we had an Oldsmobile. And, uh, <laughs> you know, my father, yeah, he's many things. He's many wonderful things. Um, but being a spendthrift is, is not one of them. And, uh, you know, if you do the math, there were typically four of us going down to um, Florida. Actually, no, five. Five, my sister would come too. So sometimes I forget about her. Um, my older brother... Didn't really go on these road trips. He was in college at the time. But uh, my twin brother and I and my sister used to drive from uh, Connecticut, where we live, down to Pompano Beach in Florida, because that's where our grandparents were. So we'd hop into that Oldsmobile and drive, you know, 15 or 100 or so miles um, from Connecticut to Pompano. And look, I mean, to my wife, this sounds like an absolute nightmare because she, she really can't sit still. I mean, she barely got through the... The trip to Cape Cod. But um, for us, you know, there was adventure in it. There was adventure. And and I think um, I think, you know, when when you when you do those road trips, the most memorable part of the vacations are often the drive to or or the drive from there. And I'll give you a couple of examples of what I mean by memorable. Okay, so there was one time we're heading down to Florida and we run into a freak snowstorm In North Carolina now, North Carolina, especially Coastal Carolina, which is kind of where I ninety five is, not really known for uh, winter weather advisory, really. Um, So we were shocked. Um, But uh, the snow starts coming down and um, starts off as a few flakes, as my mother would call it, and then and it gets more severe to the point where they close the highway, and we're seeing signs saying I ninety five closed at such and such exit. And, um, my dad, uh, to this day will defend, uh, his decision, but, um, you know, we were making good time. We were making good time. And, uh, that was the reason why he blew through the roadblock that, that was, um, you know, uh, (laughs) I guess they left one lane open for, for trucks or essential travel. And he decided that, you know, getting the family a little bit further down, Towards the South Carolina border was essential at the time, but I'll tell you this: when when he decided to to finally um, pull off the highway, there was no occupancy in any of the Holiday Inns or Howard Johnsons that were right off the highway. They, they were all booked. You know, who they were booked by they were booked by smart people who got off the road earlier. And um, needless to say, we had to drive a bit to find a place to stay. And what we found was. Well, I guess it could be best characterized as something that made the Bates Motel look like the Four Seasons. You know, this was not a nice establishment. Not that we were looking for, you know, the Ritz Carlton. You know, but this was um, this was certainly no Ritz Carlton. It, it was not even a Ritz Cracker. So we um, <laughs> we get a room, thankful thankful to get a room, and um, there's there's a steakhouse next door. And at this steakhouse next door is where I was introduced to um, one of the current loves of my life—a beef barley soup. Never had it before, but uh, let me tell you, it was love at first bite. And and at today, whenever I have beef barley soup, I think of the lessons my father taught on that on that trip. And and those lessons are, you know, primarily that it's okay to break the law if you're making good time. Uh, the other lesson we learned, or I learned, was that a hair dryer actually can be used as a space heater. Uh, when the heat uh, heater in your motel room doesn't work, because let me tell you, the heater in the Bates Motel did not work. Uh, another year, uh, and this this is a bit more of a gross story, but we're driving back, or we're about to drive back from Florida. But my mother comes down that morning with a stomach bug. Now we would typically leave Pompano around nine or ten in the morning. Um, you know, mom declares that she is not well, and uh, by that I mean it. I mean coming out of both ends. We don't need to get graphic, but I guess I just did. Now, we're still at my grandparents. We could have delayed the trip a day, right? There was no need to actually get home. Um, I could have missed a day of school. It, it would have been fine. Actually, I would have been fine by that. And it turns out that would have been the right decision. But mom declared that uh, she was feeling better around noon. So um, Donnie, Big Don, um, said, you know what? Let's, uh, let's, let's get a move on. Um, we could still probably make it to uh, the middle of Georgia if we leave at if we leave at noon. Again, all about making good time people. So, um, you know, we didn't think that whatever was bothering her was communicable, right? Um, we thought maybe she just had some food poisoning. Not um not the case. Not the case. My sister Mia was the first one to fall. And and she fell before we got to the Georgia line, before we got to the Florida Georgia line. And um, that was quickly followed by uh, myself and my twin brother, and it was not pretty. Not pretty. Both ends. You know, it was just the car, the Oldsmobile Delta 88 that we drove to and from was forever known as, after that point in time, the Vomit Comet. That's right, the Vomit Comet. But here's the thing. Um, When we think about all those trips that we took as kids down to Florida. What do you think we remember? And we don't remember anything that happened on the beach or at the pool. I couldn't tell you about the knickknacks that we bought at, you know, Bill's five and 10 across from the Oceanside shopping center. But we do talk about the jogger um, and, and what he must've been thinking <laughs> when he had to kind of hurdle over a soiled pair of tidy whiteys left on the side of the road after Jimmy had a bit of an accident, (laughs) you know, and, and we laugh about these things because they're funny. They're funny. Now may not have been funny then. And I don't know why we decided to go over, you know, that whole Chesapeake Bay 17 mile bridge, uh, which was um, not the most direct route home, but we did. God bless my father. We went over a 17 mile bridge where you cannot really pull over. At all. Um, not, but but we did it. And uh, we lived to tell the tale. So all this is to say that I hope uh, Mary Dixie Carter's road trip that she's on right now <laughs> from east to west is going better than uh, some of those trips we took down to Florida. But I, I do hope she has some, some fun memories along the way. Now, that brings me to my conversation with Mary Dixie Carter about uh, her, her debut novel, uh, The Photographer. And uh, here you go. Here is... My conversation with the charming and talented and affable. I'll add that one too. Affable. Mary Dixie Carter.
1: I am on the road. My husband and my kids and I are on a road trip um, driving cross country and we, so we're actually, it's an RV trip we rented an RV, never done that before. It's very exciting. But tonight I'm not in the RV tonight. I am. Um, we stayed, we, we have like a few hotels mixed in. And um, partly because I knew I was going to have this um, interview with you and I didn't want to be worried about the connection and stuff. So we have a hotel room. I'm sitting in the hotel room and the kids are off with my husband and um That's where I, what
0: I'm doing. So I have to, because I've always wanted to do this. Where, so are you going east coast to west coast? Like what's, what's, what's the path here?
1: So we are, um, east coast to west coast in a general sense. We have, uh, right now I'm in Massachusetts and we have a couple of necessary stops along the way. Like for example, my niece is getting married in Columbus, Ohio. So that's part of our route. We want to get to Niagara Falls if possible. Um, we're everything's taking a little longer than we anticipated. It's like we want to make a stop, and then all of a sudden, hours have you know disappeared. And and also driving an RV, which I really didn't appreciate this uh, before we got the RV. Like you're very limited in where you can go and what you can do and so you can't just be be like oh spur of the moment let's stop over there and let's get a bite to eat you need to think it through because the rv doesn't fit everywhere and it needs like a really nice big wide path to go so um so it's a little limiting, but it's also very fun. It's especially fun, I think, for the children. And the other thing is, because my book just came out, I am stopping at bookstores all along the way, and that's part of our trip, is to have a fun cross-country drive with the kids and um, and also stop at bookstores. So an unlikely story is where we stopped yesterday
0: oh very cool now what was that in Massachusetts or is that somewhere in else
1: Massachusetts yeah a beautiful bookstore and um and then today I think we're gonna try to stop we're still in Massachusetts we're gonna try to stop at Copper Dog Books
0: very cool I was just in um I live in Connecticut and I was uh in Chatham Massachusetts on Cape Cod last week with my family oh, and wow. um I, I always spend a lot of time in, in a little bookstore there called the yellow umbrella, oh. which, um, which would take you way out of your way,
1: but it's a nice bookstore, <laughs> but it's
0: a great little bookstore. I actually did a book signing there a couple years ago. And, um, it's just a fun place. Everyone's on vacation. Most everyone's in a good mood. You know, it's a, uh, it's a fun spot. It's a well, fun spot. I want
1: to, I don't know if we're, we'll be able to get there this time, but now that I know about it, you said the Yellow Umbrella?
0: Yep. The Yellow Umbrella. Yeah, it's a small, independently-owned bookstore. Um, I'm going
1: to stop there whenever I have an opportunity to.
0: Yeah, and then then you go right up the street to the Chatham Squire and uh, – you know, eat whatever you desire. Um <laughs> seafood wise or drink whatever you want, you know, if if that's a thing. <laughs> oh, Alcohol wise, it's it's a great spot. But uh Columbus, Ohio too. Like I, I got into a lot of trouble in Columbus, Ohio once. Did you? What a, happened? I was I was um so I, I I interview people for a living, you know, not just authors, but you know, clients actually hire me to do this kind of stuff. And I I was doing a um kind of a documentary style video for a particular client. And I was doing the interviewing and my videographer was with me and he and I, we, it was the last night of a project. And he, he always winds up getting me into trouble somehow because that's just his personality. <laughs> and we, um, were having dinner in Columbus at like this little pub and uh, the waitress, you know, she, she liked us. We were having a fun time. She's like, Oh, it's my birthday. I'm, I'm meeting my friends for drinks. Why don't you come? So we're like, OK, we have nothing else to do. And we go. And my friend Joe, the videographer, convinces the whole party that we're with now that he's a palm reader and <laughs> he proceeds to read their palms. And it's just it, it, it the, the night went into another direction from there. But uh, I'm, I'm not going to say anything more on audio about the rest of the so night. Wait, does he know anything about palm reading at all? I don't think so, but he, he was so convincing and he's one of these like really intuitive guys. Like one night I swear to God we were in Dallas and he, he looks at me and he says, Mike, this waitress is gonna invite us to her wedding this weekend. And I'm like, Joe, what the hell are you talking about? And I'm not kidding. Hand to God. Waitress comes up to us. She's like, You seem like nice guys. I'm getting married this weekend. Do you guys wanna come? And you I'm are like kidding hand to God. I'm like, Joe, how the hell do you do this? And he just starts laughing. And I don't know. Did did he not? He didn't even know she was getting married. No, he had no clue. But he just had he's like one of these intuitive guys. He had this like sixth sense about him. It's so it's uh, it freaks me out when he does this stuff.
1: Oh, my goodness. So, wow, that's like several leaps. He was intuitive about the fact that she was getting married and that she would invite two total strangers
0: to her wedding. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, you know that strangers are only friends who haven't met yet. So
1: that's a good. That's a good way of looking at it. That's a very nice, optimistic way of
0: looking at it. Optimistic indeed. So you, I, but let's not talk about me. I felt like we've done that too much. Um, let's let's talk I'm about kidding. you and. Uh, I, but, you know, I'm just really curious about your your background. I mean, you know, I, I have a little bit of uh, facts here in front of me, but um, I, I'm just curious about, like, what what drew you into writing as a profession? I know this is your first novel, but it's not the first thing, obviously, you've ever written. So just if you wouldn't mind, like, when when did the, you have the idea that, um, you know, you wanted to, to do something with writing for a living?
1: So I... Started off as a journalist. Um, so before that, actually, I started off as an actor, and I was a stage actor, and I did a lot of classical theater, um, a tiny bit of uh, film and television, and um, and I really loved that, and still love it actually. But then I went to I went to work at the New York Observer. The reason I went to work there was actually at the time my father uh, was the publisher of the New York Observer, and so I went to work to go into the family business. That was really the but. But before that, I'd always been writing. So I'd all in, in addition to acting, I'd always been writing something or other, whether it was um, essays or stories, or uh, um, I enjoyed writing and. Um, it was fulfilling for me. So uh, the, the New York Observer was sold maybe six years later, um, and I uh, so I had planned to stay there. And then I left after the paper was sold, and I worked uh, at several other publications. I wrote for The Economist. I wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle, Chicago Tribune. And then um, more recently, I did some pieces for Time. Um And I enjoyed that very much too. Um, Around the time I got pregnant, I wrote a draft of a novel, not this novel, but this was when I was pregnant with my first child. Um, And I never, I was not able to sell that novel. I did um, get an agent and I sent it around and people, people, said really nice things about it but no one bought it. So it was that was not published. It's still sitting there on my computer and you know who knows what might happen one day. Um but I did learn a, a lot from writing that first novel and I knew I enjoyed enjoyed the, the whole process of writing a novel and I also felt like I'm I was proud of that novel, though it was not um, published. So, you know, I set out to write a second novel and it. W- I understood a few things better than I had the first time round. And so here I am today. And I um, couldn't be more thrilled with the good fortune that I've had with this novel because I, you know, because I did it before and it didn't work out, I do know, like, how fortunate I am that I, that the novels has been published and that I've got to work with such extraordinary people and, um, and I'm such extraordinary publisher and, you know, I, I'm blessed and yeah. I feel very, you know, lucky about the whole thing.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, writing is definitely it's it's not for the faint of heart, especially you know after you go through the experience of pouring your heart and soul into a first a first novel, and then not being able to sell it. I mean, finding the agent is a is a huge win um, because you know most most novelists, first time novelists, don't even get that far. So what I'm curious about is like where where did like sort of. I'm going to use the term that I used to hear in professional wrestling in the 80s. But where, where did you find the the intestinal fortitude to to put pen to paper again and start that second one? Because I know a lot of people would be like just so bummed out that they couldn't sell it and and move on to maybe something else. What what pushed you to to pick up the pen, so to speak, and and start again?
1: Um. So good question. Well, I did. Uh, go do an MFA between the two novels and I would actually maybe I shouldn't say between the two novels because um, some of the second novel I wrote while I was doing the MFA Uh, so the MFA was really valuable because I did have two kids at that point and um, it forced me to prioritize my time and to spend a certain amount of time writing every day in spite of the fact that I had two young children. Yeah. So, um, and I did that... It, it, I wouldn't say I wrote the novel because of the MFA. I was in the MFA because I was writing a novel, and that seemed like a... Um, it would allow me a lot of structure to really get it done. Um, I knew that... Uh, I, I just knew that it was something I could do. I mean, I guess I had the feeling it was something that I could do and something that I enjoyed doing and that I found fulfilling. And I had another story to tell. And I guess that's, you know, what it comes down to is feeling like I had something to say, a story to tell. And I wanted to to get it down on paper and, you know, hoping that other people would respond to it, which is a big leap of faith because, uh, you know, you can write the whole thing and you can love it yourself, but then it's a whole other matter to get other people on board. And um, and so it does require, I guess, confidence. And I have don't always feel like I have tons of confidence, but it does require some sort of belief that, Well, let me get to the end of this and then, um, I'll be able to do something with it. Um, but it's hard to sustain that. And there were periods of time where I lost it and thought to myself, oh gosh, no one's ever going to like this. No one's ever going to publish it. Um, and then I would try to like regroup and like get more focused and disciplined and move forward and get it done.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask like, what wh- what do you turn to for like sources of inspiration or or even strength during those times where you're down? Because you know during the writing process, I mean it. I mean I can speak for myself, but I, I know I've done this enough with other authors to know that there is a roller coaster of emotion that you go on because you're so excited about the story, and then you talk to people about it, maybe you get some notes, and then. Then you know you, you might hit a, a little bit of a lull. Like, is there something that you turn to that that helps pull you back into like this emotion of excitement, or, or to to kind of get re-energized about the project again?
1: Uh, I guess the main thing that I try to do. Oh well, there's two parts. There's two answers to that. One is reading really interesting books can sometimes do that. Um, or not even uh, books like a piece in a magazine or there might be something that you read that hits you in a certain way and you don't necessarily use use it as inspiration per se, but it strikes a chord in you and it allows you to access something that you weren't able to access before. Um, the other thing is forcing myself to just write something. And accepting that what I write is going to be bad and it's going to be bad until it gets good. And that's yeah. like something that it's when, when I was much younger, it was really hard to kind of believe that. Um, and, and I really try to believe it now, which is like, write the bad version, just keep writing it. And eventually it will get better.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the, the writing every day thing is is real. I mean, and that is, you know, when 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 I talk to authors and, and even I give advice to other people, it's you have to do it every day. It's like building a muscle. And and I think about it like, you know, I'm a runner. And when I first started running, not every run was a good run, like every I had a lot of bad runs and but every bad run will get you closer to a better run and then eventually a good run. And then, you know, so I think there's, there's something to that of of doing something consistently and having that discipline to do it, even though, you know, or accept the fact that it's, it's not going to be, you know, publishable, but it is, you know, it is like training. It is doing a workout. It is, it it is doing it for you.
1: Yeah. And, and, Maybe you can't ever get to the good material. Maybe the the the, le- the mediocre material is somehow like um, on some layer in the good material, like that that is a layering kind of thing, like doing a painting where there's the bottom layer that no one will ever see. And then there's layers and layers on top of it. And that bottom layer that no one will ever see is that drafts that you wrote that you wouldn't show anyone because you feel like it had very little merit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so tell me, what was the inspiration of, um, of the photographer? What, how did, how did this idea come to you? I'm always curious as to, you know, where these, these sparks of ideas come from.
1: So I hired a photographer myself (laughs) and, I hired a photographer to take pictures of my two children, who are now uh, 11 and 8. This was uh, quite a few years ago. And the pictures came back, and they were really beautiful. But my children's eyes in the photos were cobalt blue, vivid, bright blue. And they're not in real life. And I said to the photographer, I'd like for my children's eyes to be their real color, and she said, there is no real color. And I was so struck by that, by that, by the idea and by the point of view, by the psychology that goes with that. And that if you were to apply that and keep applying it to someone's point of view, that's what this character and the photographer, Delta Dawn, that's who she is. There is no real color. There is no real anything. I take a picture and I make it what I want it to be or what I think it should be. And then I believe in that version. And then I believe that's the real version. And the the reality or what was there to begin with is like totally irrelevant and gone. There's not, it's not even a reference point because, because you've, created she's created her own story her own narrative and she does that in in her photos and she does that in her life and so that's what got me going on the story
0: yeah i mean this this character this delta dawn it, it, i mean it's so well crafted i mean there there's a lot of depth there it's almost like i mean it, did you know anybody like this in real life? I mean, did you, you know, was there somebody you're, you're basing this on or maybe a group of personalities maybe that that you based her on?
1: So there are a group of personalities. That's probably the best way to put it. Um, I know a couple of people who lie to themselves, and that's what Delta does. People who lie to themselves and tell themselves a version that, that, that is convenient for them to believe. And I think everyone does that. I know I lie to myself sometimes, and sometimes people, sometimes we need to lie to ourselves, but Delza really goes above and beyond in lying to herself um, when she needs to. And she's extremely sharp and perceptive, but she also um, chooses, well, she lies to herself. So, so that's one quality. Another quality that Delta has is this outsider quality, um, the feeling of being an outsider. And I'd say that's something I identify with. I'm not saying that I'm similar to her because she has quite a number of issues. <laughs> but,
0: <laughs> she's like pathological.
1: <laughs> but she feels like an outsider and – I think everyone at some point in their life feels like an outsider, whether or not they are an outsider or whether or not to, to the rest of the world, um, they look like an outsider. People in certain situations feel like an outsider and, and Delta really feels like an outsider and takes that with her wherever she goes. She feels like she's one down. She came from the wrong side of the tracks Um, less educated, um, less affluent. I mean, this is the way her outsider status sort of materializes. And each person might feel like an outsider for very different reasons in different situations. But in her situation, she grew up at Disney world. Her parents were janitors at Disney world. She was there at Disney world, but not really a participant just kind of observing it. And um, and that's how she feels in a lot of different, different situations. And um, she dated this guy in high school. She describes dating a guy in high school that was uh, from a more well-to-do family. And really the reason she dated him was she wanted to understand the lifestyle and observe the lifestyle so that she could emulate it, so she could fit in. So when she gets to Brooklyn she's she's doing really well she's a successful photographer she doesn't need to latch on to another family she could have a nice life of her own but she doesn't feel that about herself so she sees the Stroud family as the ultimate everything that she wants to be they're very glamorous they're polished they've got this gorgeous townhouse they're um they're fancy in her mind and um and cool uh so she wants to be them and she wants to be part of them and will do whatever she needs to do to get there
0: yeah yeah. And plus, if she just if she just started living her own life, you you wouldn't have much of a story. So it's probably a good thing that she latches <laughs> onto this family. I, I have to ask, though. I mean, because you you kind of put her as kind of growing up around Disney World. But have you did you ever know anybody who worked at Walt Disney World as like a cast member or anything like that?
1: Um, I did not know anyone who worked as a cast member at Walt Disney. But you know, I did write a piece. Um, years ago that I wrote a book review and I think the book was called One Perfect Day or something like that um, Rebecca Mead and it, it was about the wedding industry but there was a lot of focus on, on Disney and, um, and I did learn quite a bit about Disney writing that review years ago so I was Interested. I, I mean, it sort of got me interested in Disney as Disney is a fascinating place and also fascinating <laughs> people who are attracted to it. And yes, I mean, the whole world of Disney or land of Disney, whatever. Um, it's just um, so endlessly um, interesting.
0: No, I just I just find it fascinating because I have a um, I mean, I grew up in in South Florida in the 70s and 80s. And I remember going there as a kid. It was it was new back then. And (laughs) but then I remember like being enamored by it. You know, like Disney, it's so beautiful. It's wonderful. I took my own kids there when they were little. But like there was like a hidden underbelly to Disney World that I mean, I don't want to to, you know, uh, you know, put a dark cloud over the happiest place on earth. But (laughs) there there is definitely a hidden, there's like a hidden, like, uh, culture, let's say among the, uh, the cast members that uh, I had some friends who did the Disney internship in college and, uh, they came back, changed people. And I'll just leave it. I'll leave it at that. They came back as changed people. Yeah.
1: Oh, I wish. I, I mean, at some point I would love to know those stories because that, um, that was the kind of thing that I was researching and looking up when I was thinking about Delta's childhood because I knew yeah. I knew about that underbelly. I don't have that many um, real first-hand stories, uh, but I, you know, only what I was able to read about online, etc. Um, but I did know about it, um, and and also I can I can almost intuit what it is you know yeah. like it, yeah. there's a there's a sense that none of this can't be so happy <laughs> <laughs> there's something going on underneath it's not so happy
0: yeah no th- i think that would be an interesting an interesting plot for a novel like or like a comedic novel or something you know the the hidden underbelly of a Walt Disney world type place where things aren't necessarily always what they seem
1: Yes, it would really be a great, that'd be a great book just to focus on Disney alone. I mean, I guess yeah. maybe you'd have to change the name, I guess. Um, I
0: mean, I wouldn't want to get sued, you know, <laughs> I, I, that's they have more money than I do. I really wouldn't want to go down that path or, uh, you know, but um, but you know I mean I think I think of this character you know the, the Delta who's living like this sort of du- duplicitous life and but then I think of like the 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 times in which we're living in right now where where people live you know honest to god people we know live alternative realities of their lives or they they put alternate realities of their lives on social media yeah. you know I'll see I'll see people like with the happy family picture on Facebook Instagram and I'm like I know that they are headed for divorce right now, yet, you know, to the world, they're putting this, you know, this, this, this rosy picture of their lives, you know, on, on social. And, And I'm just curious as to, I mean, do you think that that's something that that is, is more prevalent now? Like people just leading like, like, you know, Delta Dawn, like leading these alternative realities or presenting these, these false realities of their life now?
1: yes 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 i think that it is so prevalent now and and people living through their photos i mean living like almost that they that they attach a lot of meaning to the photo and that that gives them some it feeds them in some weird way it feeds either their ego or their need for um affection or their need for for whatever the, the photo does a lot for them. And, and then also this, what you're describing is putting a picture, this perfect picture up on Instagram and the perfect picture is just a presentation and it's not the reality. Um, this is, there's going to be like consequences. I don't even know what the consequences are. But I feel like, you know, whatever, 20, 30, 40 years from now, that, that we're going to have consequences for this because it's, it's very odd. There's a disconnect between yeah. what we're telling the world is true and what is really true. And, um, you know, some people take it further than others. Some people just, you know tweak the photo a little bit. And then some people really, you know, wholesale change of the photo Um, or, or just pose in a way to create um, so that people will interpret a situation that is not true. Like you're saying, Oh, I know that they're headed for divorce. Why are they putting the happy family up on Instagram?
0: Yeah. And and I think, you know, the, the, when the bill comes due it's it's not necessarily going to be people let's say in in our age group um, that are going to be you know holding the bag it's going to be our kids because they're they get subjected to like i think for the most part we could tell kind of what's real and what's fake right maybe maybe i'm giving myself too much credit but but our kids when 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 all they see when they go on and they're glued you know i have three 19 year olds at home um, Three 19 they are, year olds. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the proud father of triplets. Oh and, my
1: goodness. Wow. But,
0: but they are, they are glued to, you know, they're glued to their phones and they're on Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok and, and they see, you know, their frame of reference, you know, our, my frame of reference was like 80s sitcoms, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's, and that's kind of what's stuck in my head and, you know, the Huxtable family right. and, and others. Uh, but you know, my, the kids, they, they follow these Instagram influencers and these YouTubers and, and they get, they get subjected to so much, I'll call it alternative realities that I, you know, I just hope that, that they can learn that not everything is as rosy as it's being presented to them.
1: Yeah. I hope they can learn that too. I couldn't agree more. And I, um, I mean, I think it's we we should work I don't know exactly how, but I feel like we should work to correct to correct it to correct this um what what our kids are receiving and on social media and and try to allow them to see something else that is closer to closer to reality,
0: yeah. But then I realized that I sound like an old man right now because I'm, I'm saying that, you know, people, alternative realities, Facebook, Instagram, and I'm, you know, getting upset about it. And then I remember back in like 83, my mother like screaming at us about how bad MTV was. So, you know, maybe it's <laughs> maybe it's just the natural course of events. I don't but know. Th-
1: doesn't MTV seem so innocent compared to
0: well. – <laughs> yeah. Especially compared to what it is now. I mean, do we really need a show called Teen Mom 2? You know, it's like, or the next Teen Mom or Beyond Teen Mom. It's almost like, you know, they're just fascinated. What about teen dads? Like, they get a bad rap. I mean, this is... That would be, to me, that would be interesting. Teen dad. I don't know. It seems like they're never in the picture. If they are, they're complete scumbags. <laughs> Um, oh dear!
1: It does. It does seem like um, if we go back to like my childhood, the it was limited the kinds of media I can cons- consume. First of all, it was on at a certain time every day, and you either like it was a TV show, you either watched it or you missed it. And that, yeah. was it. And that was it. That was that's right. And um, and MTV. It wasn't like there was. 4 million different things you could access at any moment of the day its just too much. That's another thing. Just too many options.
0: That's right. I mean, you know, back then it was, you know, not to date myself, but you know, I, I remember the days before cable TV and it was three channels, you know, maybe if you're lucky, you could pick up something on UHF with an antenna and, uh, you know, other other than that, it was um and, and it was limited. Screen time was totally limited. And uh now it's um well now it's different and I'm, and I'm approaching old man territory again and I, I want to be conscious of that. <laughs> <laughs> I want but I mean you certainly you had a different I mean, you know, your your you know, your your mother and stepfather were in the business. I mean, they were in the and 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 not just on on the periphery of the entertainment business, I mean they were a pretty big part of it.
1: Um, yes, they, um, my, my mom, uh, Dixie Carter, she was on a successful television series, Designing Women, for um, a number of years. She passed away, uh, sadly, about 11 years ago. My stepfather, uh, Hal Holbrook, he uh, had an incredible career, and, um, and he just passed away a few months ago, actually, earlier this year. And uh, I miss both of them terribly. And I wish they were around. I wish they were around to see the this book being published. I think they'd be really excited. Um, so they were both uh, great role models, inspiration. Um, Hal had a one-man show called Mark Twain Tonight that he yeah. performed – for more than 60 years touring around the country and around the world. And, um, and I saw that show probably almost 40 times. Wow. And and so like the Mark, Mark Twain's, um, words and also Hal's performance, both are almost, you know, like soaked into my system. I could practically recite the whole thing. Um, (laughs) But, but you know that being around that language is so, I think it's helpful if you want to be a writer, um, having that be part of your formative years, having uh, being in the world of the arts, I think is really helpful um, if you want to be in that world too. So I'm, I feel very fortunate that I grew up and I also have an amazing father, um, and a stepmother. And so I, 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 um, yeah, I I wish that my mother, uh, was able to read the book and I wish she were around and she, I think she'd be very, very excited.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, without a doubt, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard when, when your parents aren't around to you know, see your, see your kids grow up. I mean, that's the one thing that we always wished, uh, you know, my father-in-law passed away, bef- he knew my wife was pregnant with the kids, but you know, he didn't, you know, he had a sudden heart issue and he wasn't around yeah. to, to see them. And it's, um, yeah, that's, it's probably one of those things where, you know, you, you of course want your parents to be proud of you and, and, you know, be proud of your success For us, it was, hey, I just I really just wish my my father-in-law could have known, you know, these three grandchildren of his. Um, That's hard. I know it's hard.
1: um, It really is hard. That's exactly how I feel, too. My um, my mom passed away six weeks before my daughter was born, um, my oldest child. And um, so she knew I was pregnant. And yeah. she also knew um, I was kind of a girl, but she never got to meet either one of my children. And um, and that's, you know, that's just a same as you've experienced. It's just a sadness and a loss because um, I think sometimes we feel like our parents make things, their seeing it makes it more real to us. And, um, the way like my eight year old will say, look at this, look what I can do, or look what I made, or look at this project, or, um, sometimes parents give that to their children, the feeling that something is real or valid. And so you want to, when, when you feel like something is, uh, this huge part of your life, like your children, for example, um, I want my mom to see them, to be like, yes, they are here. They are incredible. Um, I'm sure that's how you and your wife feel too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, and it's definitely a theme that I explore in, in my own writing, this, this theme of, um, you know, premature loss. Um, And, you know, there's so much emotion that comes from that. And, and I always find that, those, you know, it, certainly you can be inspired by happy emotions, but those sort of more sorrowful emotions can can really help fuel the uh, the sort of creative process. And there's so yeah. much um, so much that can come from that. I mean, that's the selfish part of of, of loss, right? Kind of using it right. somehow to yeah. to your advantage. But um, yeah. exactly. Well, I right. I'm sure that you have a busy day. I don't know where, where else the RV is going today. Um, are you – Are you? so you're sticking around Massachusetts and, and hitting another bookstore or – Well,
1: I'm hoping we will make it to Copper Dog Books. And then maybe um, – we might make it to Vermont. Um, okay. We um, – well, I'll see how far we can get – my, my husband is doing some of the n- navigating and planning of our route and it's had, we've had to, um, edit it a bit because we've fallen behind on a couple things. So, um, our original plan may have been a little ambitious, especially because we have to get to, um, Ohio by the 26th for actually the 25th because of the the rehearsal. So for my niece's wedding. Um, so we, we may have to cut back on a couple of our plans, but then, so then after that, we're going to go to Chicago and then we're going to go further West and we're going to go to Arches National Park and Colorado. And, um, and so there's a, there's a lot of exciting plans.
0: Well, you know, it's, it's almost like whenever I outline a novel, um, I always kind of know where it's going and I have all the beats, but something inevitably changes along the way, yeah. um, you, know, some, you know, cause you get inspired as you learn and understand your characters more, but it's the same thing as, as a road trip, right? The, the route changes you have to adjust. And, and sometimes the most fun is in those adjustments.
1: Yes. True. Very true. Yes. Sometimes, sometimes when you're writing something, the, the, Being forced to do something a certain way for whatever reason allows a whole uh, um, new surge of inspiration that wouldn't have appeared otherwise. So sometimes a a boundary um, or some sort of structure that you at first are sorry for, but then you realize it was actually helpful in the end.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, very good. I think that's a great point to end on. (laughs) It's such a pleasure to
1: talk to you. I so enjoyed our conversation.
0: Likewise, it was very good. And uh, Mary Dixie Carter, I wish you all the best with, uh, with the photographer.
1: Thank you, Mike. Thank you.
0: Well, there you have it. My interview, my conversation, not really an interview. I like to think of it as more of a of a chat getting to know mary dixie carter and her book the photographer that uh that was a fun one um i I hope she's having a good time on her road trip hope she makes it to uh the wedding she's going to in in columbus for her niece um and uh yeah i just really really just got so much out of that i really got so much out of that um you know the, the advice that she gives to uh authors about kind of getting up and, and really just doing it every day, even even though she knows that not everything is going to be great, is um, is some pretty fantastic advice. And and I encourage you all to pick up uh, The Photographer. And uh, I'm not just saying that because um, I just had a great conversation with her. It actually is quite a compelling read. Uh, it is available. Of course, you could buy it wherever books are sold, right? Um, so you can go into a Barnes & Noble or you can go to Amazon and, and get it. But I'm going to ask that you consider, you know, as we're coming out of this pandemic, a lot of small businesses have been have been hurt, um, some, some of which may never come back or come back the way they were, uh, so please consider going to a small independent bookstore, you know, your mom and pop, if you will, um, to pick up a, a copy of Mary Dixie Carter's The Photographer, and of course, if you must buy it online, and I know that uh, not everyone has a bookstore convenient to them uh amazon's an option but so is bookshop.org uh, and whenever you buy something from bookshop.org you um they i should say uh, donate i don't know how they do it um they figure it out they donate uh part of the proceeds back to a local independent bookshop so i think that's really really cool and uh, i'm gonna invite you to do something right now and that is uh, that is this if if you liked what you heard here and you want to listen to some other episodes of Uncorking a Story, you can feel free to go to wherever get your podcast and do that. Or you can go over to mikecarlin.com. That's C A R L O N.com, mikecarlin.com, because we like to keep it confusing. And, um, and uh, you know, check out all the past episodes on the, on the podcast tab. Uh, you could also check out my books. There's eight of them up there for you to uh, consider buying, along with Mary Dixie Carter's The Photographer. And,. Um, you know, I'd really appreciate it. And so would all the hardworking men, women, and dogs here at um, Uncorking a Story, appreciate it. If you would uh, like, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts, um, iTunes, Spotify, you know, Google Play, wherever. Please uh, like, rate, review. And hey, look, if you wanna keep in the loop on everything regarding Uncorking a Story, I've got a great idea. You can easily hit the subscribe button And when you subscribe, you're going to get every episode and that'll be great. Lastly, I'm going to invite you to tell your friends about Uncorking a Story because that's a great way to get the word out of uh, all the great content we have at um, Uncorking a Story. So uh, again, again, for all the uh, men, women and dogs here at Uncorking a Story, this is Mike Carlin saying thanks for listening and until next time.